I'll, I'll kick things off because I was the I think was the only one who was there. Right. I, uh, uh, Peter talked about the um, evidence of resurrection, but I, I thought a couple of your introductory comments mm. were good about how the new atheists sort of define faith, mm. and then what is more of a Christian yeah. definition of faith. And yeah. Maybe share a bit about that and how you know to communicate get that across to people. Mm, mm. The, the new atheists have done a really good Can you job. Do one thing? Who, who would you consider to be in the genre? The new atheists. New atheists, right, okay. Hey, oh, hello. Come on, Joyce. Hello. Uh, hey. find another chair. Great. Move around a bit. Devin, you might want to watch out. The, underneath of that chair looks Sorry, like it's completely gone. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> don't don't fall through. <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I don't think you've helped me much. How was the uh, event in Highfield? Okay, we're just going to hear about it. Yeah, we, um, I suppose we had about, what, 60? I think about 60. Of folks there. That's good. Uh, quite a bunch How of many normal students. Good one. Yeah, quite a bunch of younger sort of student age uh, folks there as well. And good, I thought good penetrating questions afterwards. Uh, I'd, I'd set it up so that the, uh, the questions afterwards wouldn't really cover the territory that I'd covered in the talk. I wanted to sort of clear clear away the stuff that I made on the talk about the historical evidence, what the sort of data to be explained is, and to try and move the discussion on in the, the Q&A time to issues more to do with sort of, well, what did, that, what did that mean and how do you communicate it and how did people's, the beliefs that people have when they approach the subject affect how they deal with it. Um, so, you know, obviously, if, if you already believe in a God and then you're shown the evidence for the resurrection, that's probably going to carry a lot more weight with you. Yep. And all of the weight of the evidence is going to go into convincing you that Christianity is true, yep. rather than it having to sort of go into convincing you that there's a God who could, you know, be revealing himself that way, etc. If you're uh, an agnostic, you know, definitely if you're an atheist, if you're a dogmatic atheist, you're sort of, no amount of evidence is going to convince you because you'll say, well, I, you know, miracles are impossible or yes. something like this. It's interesting so, thing that um, John was, Jonathan was sharing in the car. Because mm. I made a last minute decision as I was on the phone as my lift was disappearing out the door not to, not to come to them. <laughs> Which I regretted after I listened to Jonathan. <laughs> the, the interesting thing that comments Jonathan made was that, um, well, for me, very often when, you, when you're looking at... Um, literature or talks um, on agnostics, it, the starting point is always the Christian, I'm a Christian, I believe this, which mm. is not the same starting point as the people that I'm in conversation no. with. right. Whereas Jonathan was saying you, you were starting where they are to bring them to where... Yes, yeah, and that's very much right. I wrote a, a, a book a number of years ago called um, Understanding Jesus, Five Ways to Spiritual Enlightenment, which kind of frames looking at Jesus and gives five different arguments for the Christian view of Jesus. And that does the, the same thing, of sort of saying to the reader... Um, where are you vis-a-vis Christian belief in Jesus? You know, how sceptical of that are you on the scale? Okay. Now let me give you one argument for the Christian view of Jesus. Um, if you think there's some weight to, say, the lunatic liar lord argument, yeah. um, you might actually think, well, there's some weight to that argument. That makes me a bit less sceptical than I was, but it's not enough to convince me. Well, fine, okay, but I've, I've kind of soaked up a bit of your prior scepticism. Now when I give you argument number two, 
you know, Jesus fulfilled all these prophecies from the Old Testament, say. Um, well, you approach that argument a little less sceptical than you were before. And maybe you'll think that and think, well, that, that's quite compelling, but, you know, it doesn't quite tip me over the 50-50. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm now agnostic about, you know, <laughs> Jesus. Well, let me give you a look, you know, um, what about contemporary religious experience involving Jesus or miracles in his name or whatever? And you might, oh, yeah, okay. And so, you know, by a sort of accumulation of arguments, I sort of chip away at wherever the, the reader was and sort of just ask the readers to give them the responsibility of kind of keeping track of how is this new incoming information changing my mind about things. And I can see that that will be, you know, highly influenced by where I started off in this discussion. And that, of course, someone who started off le less sceptical than me would be entirely reasonable you know, to believe in Jesus by this point, although I don't. Uh, and sort of, so you factor in, there are the people's prior beliefs have a huge effect. Then there's the matter, as I was saying last night, of what is the, the sort of, what agreement can we get on what is there to be explained? What, what data can we have? And then there's the discussion of, so what's the best understanding? What's the best explanation of it? But all that is very much influenced by people's prior beliefs about, is there a God? Are miracles possible? Are they knowable? You know, how do you do history, etc. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Okay. Hey, wait, I get my question. Yeah. <laughs> Who are the new atheists? Right, okay. Um, so, paradigmatic examples would be folks like Richard Dawkins, uh, A.C. Grayling, Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens. Um, there are, uh, it's primarily American and English uh, atheists, although there are a few on the, the continent. Um, what really defines them uh, is um, uh, their they're sort of scientistic materialists who think that um, religious faith is not only a, a, an intellectually mistaken position, but dangerous. It, faith is bad for you and for society. And therefore there's a sort of moral crusade that sees itself as sort of standing up for science and rationality against the dark forces of superstitious mumbo-jumbo that is plunging society into religious terrorism and um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so they have a sort of um, a materialistic worldview, a, a scientistic, you know, science is the only way to know anything, theory of how we know stuff, combined with a sort of moral objection to religion that primarily boils down to the, the false idea that all religious faith is identical with having blind faith. Right. So if you're religious, you're committed to believing things without any good reason or in the face of reasons not to, that's what it is to have faith, and that leaves you wide open to being convinced to fly planes into buildings because you're already committed to not living up to any intellectual obligations that you should do. So... Okay, there's a big difference between you know um, a, a, a Taliban suicide bomber or whatever, and um, a, a Quaker, or, <laughs> or you know the, the vicar at the tea party. So you say, would you like another slice of cake, dear? Um, but the vicar at the tea party, however mild-mannered and you know lovely and doing social work and things, which is all lovely, but he is committed to blind faith. 
And so legitimises and creates a space within society for people to think having blind faith is fine, and that legitimises and creates a space for religious people to do terrible things to each other and other people. That's Mm -hmm. there. So it does come down to this idea that faith equals blind faith, full stop. Right. Um, And you you (laughs) redefine it, you you use a nice, well, for me, it's quite nice Mm. way of thinking. You believe something because you're convinced it's It's true. true, yeah. Obviously, you, you, um, you, you can't just decide to believe something. You, you only believe something if you are sincerely convinced that it is true. Now, you might have better or worse reasons, yeah. uh, broadly speaking, for that being the case, but actually, bib- biblically d- defined, at least, um, faith could be better translated uh, as, as trust on good grounds. Um, the Greek words are, all have to do with things like being convinced or, or just believing that. It, it certainly doesn't equate to blind faith. Uh, and if you look up in you know, dictionaries, and New Atheists don't seem to read dictionaries because blind faith will be one kind of sub-definition of what faith can, can mean. Yeah. Um, but generally speaking, it just means belief, particularly in God or religious system, trust... Um, I have faith in my wife, um, <laughs> you know, I, I have or have not got faith in the government, etc, etc. Uh, and that kind of trust is perfectly compatible and it usually goes along with thinking you've got some reason to trust someone. Um, and certainly within the New Testament where you have, you know, um, the apologetical kind of template of folks like Peter and Paul and Jesus um, you know, Jesus saying believe on the evidence of the miracles and so on but what the new atheists will do is they'll, they'll take biblical passages and stories and, and kind of misinterpret them to fit their prior understanding of what faith is so they'll take the story of doubting Thomas a lot of them mention you know Faith is blind belief, as is shown by the story of Doubting Thomas, who Jesus criticised for wanting to have evidence for what he believed. You know, um, you know, blessed are you who've seen and believe, but you know, more blessed are those who haven't seen and believe. I.e., Jesus is saying, it's much better to believe in me without having any reasons to do it. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, um, <laughs> what do you do with that? Well, I, you just uh, go back to the passage and, and exegete it properly and say, okay, um, Jesus is not um, criticising Thomas um, by saying he should have blind faith. He's criticising by saying he had reason to believe, but still refused to. He was setting the bar too high. He had the eyewitness testimony of uh, 10 of his close friends <laughs> that they had met the resurrected Jesus he could go down the road and examine the empty tomb for himself should he want to so, you know, he's in a better position than we are today <laughs> to, to know um, and, and we don't think we believe on no, no grounds at all hello greetings just talking about how the, the new atheists misinterpret the, the story of um, doubting Thomas mm-hmm. uh, to say faith, faith is automatically blind. And indeed, just just after relating the story of doubting Thomas, what does John do in his gospel at the end? But says, um, 
You know, Jesus did lots of things that you couldn't yes. write about, but these are written. Why? That you may believe. In other words, John tells us at the end of his Gospel, just after telling the Doubting Thomas story, that the reason I'm telling you these things is to give you evidence upon which to believe yeah. in Jesus. Um, all of the other disciples are, of course, portrayed as believing, not as a matter of blind faith, but because they had experience which led them to change their mind about things. Yep. Um, etc. So the whole tenor, as well as the content <laughs> and the framing of the Doubting Thomas story, makes precisely the opposite point yeah. to which the New Atheists try and make it make, or they will misinterpret something like you know Hebrews, um, faith is the um, the essence of things not not seen, and you know it's all like not having evidence and so yeah. on. So I, w- I will go into the language behind that and show how actually you know it's it's talking about how uh, your reasonably grounded belief that God will fulfil His promise to you to, of of heaven means that you should stick with Jesus despite suffering temporarily in this life under persecution. Mm-hmm. Um, it's talking about your hope of things that you don't see here and now while you're suffering. You don't see mm-hmm. your heavenly glory. Of course not. <laughs> but it's, you, know, you stick with it because you've got good reason to believe that you will, that this suffering will you know, be temporary, will be over, will be compensated, etc., etc. Um, so that's what it means by not seen. <laughs> um, the difference between <laughs> not seen and not knowing. Right. Right, it's, you don't see it here and now, but you know it's coming. <laughs> well, there's good evidence, like yeah. you were saying to Thomas, you could know. Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. It's, it's there for you. Yeah. Indeed, in the, in the passage, I, I can't <coughs> do it verbatim, but it, it talks about uh, your knowledge of, of Christ grounding the hope yeah. that, that is coming. So they, they just sort of take a verse out of the context around it. Uh, and then misinterpret it to try and sort of back That's up what they're... all the time, yeah, isn't yeah. it? You know, yeah. it's a bit of a pick and mix, isn't it, for yeah. some people? May yeah. I ask one question, mm. it as foundation? Who, who do you see as good Christian apologists mm. that can cover the bases? Yeah. Um, particularly since the, the sort of 1960s in America, there's been a revolution in the philosophical discipline, particularly from America, um, whereby... Um, the discipline suddenly got an influx of very talented Christian philosophers um, who are now like the largest single interest group within the guild. They have the largest philosophical societies and publications and so on. You know, they're not the they're not the dominant voice, but they're the biggest single kind of yeah. voice uh, within the discipline. And that has uh, trickled down into the area of, of apologetics and so on. Um, so I would particularly recommend guys involved in that revolution like William Lane Craig um, who um, did, did one PhD um, which revitalised the discussion of, of a particular version of the cosmological argument from the beginning of the universe. He sort of married an old medieval discussion with contemporary cosmology um, and that's one of the most talked about arguments for God in the contemporary literature. And then he did a second PhD under uh, uh, um, uh, in Germany on the resurrection, the historical evidence for the resurrection. So Craig is like the, the classical one-two arguments for God and the resurrection as an argument for Jesus. Yep. Um, and he he does fine, top-notch philosophical stuff and very fine 
communicating at the popular level yeah, yeah. kind of thing. And if he will write, he'll take a subject and he will write, you know, three academic monographs on a topic that's related to uh, thinking about God philosophically, and then he will write a popular level digest of that yeah. and communicate it and give lectures and so on. So, you know, you, you know, he's not just a good communicator at the popular level, which is mainly what I do, but he's, he's doing the, the chalk face yeah. stuff and, and, you know, debating the top level guys on the other side constantly and so on. Yeah. Um, so, William Lane Craig, uh, J.P. Morland, it's very good. Um, Alvin Plantinga, uh, probably the top philosopher of religion in the world, although recently retired. Um, uh, over in in uh, Britain, um, Richard Swinburne is probably the f- most famous Christian philosopher, um, but um, he tends to uh, be rather harder to read, <laughs> shall we say. Um, Keith Ward is interesting, it's good. Um, Where would you bring C.S. Lewis into the Oh, well, I was, I was talking about contemporaneous. Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean... Where would he? Yeah, he's, uh, he's still discussed, actually, and still um, an influential voice within certain areas, interestingly. Um, but he is... I mean, he was trained in philosophy in the early 20th century in Oxford, um, dealing with a certain type of you know, philosophy as it was in that field in that day. Yeah. Um, and he was a, a popular lay communicator whose day job was professor of medieval literature, um, but who felt the calling to sort of, well, I'll do this apologetic stuff because nobody else seems to be doing it, you know. And he um, obviously had a very uh, rounded ability to communicate in all sorts of different media uh, within you know, fantasy literature, poetry, um, uh, professional literature talking about the medieval worldview in uh, Milton or whatever, um, and works of popular apologetics, and even at beginning with the sort of media religion, doing his talks in World War Two on the radio that became mere Christianity and, and so on. So, and he used to go round at the behest of, of of the Air Force giving talks to airmen during World War Two, sort of getting used to communicating to the man on, on yep. the clap of omnibus kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I, I still well worth reading. Um, you can learn a lot from him about how to write and communicate well. <laughs> He's, the language is still not that dated. It's not like if you go back and read someone who was influential on, on Lewis, like G.K. Chesterton, who was like a, a popular journalist at the time, but he's really quite hard for a modern audience to read because language has moved on, but Lewis is still not too dated. Um, but particularly things that he, he talked about, um, the argument from reason that he does in Miracles about how, how can you trust your reason if materialism is true and all your thoughts are just the, the movements of material things in your brain behaving according to the laws of physics. Um, how do you even manage to have thoughts that are true or false about things and, and that are reliable, <laughs> and so on. Um, how, how does the atheist think his thoughts about God are any more reliable than my thoughts about God if both of our thinkings are just 
<laughs> material things moving according to the laws of physics. Um, that kind of argument is, is hotly discussed in the literature um, today. Uh, and um, Alvin Planting has done an update on that argument, which when he, when he launched it, footnoted and said, this bears similarities to the argument that C.S. Lewis made in... <laughs> Um, you know, and I'm taking it in a slightly different direction, etc. So he, he's still quite influential. Actually, I'm, I'm just finishing editing a, a book um, of papers from um, 2013 was the 50th anniversary of Lewis's death, and um, you may know that Westminster Abbey unveiled a memorial to him in Poets' Corner in Westminster Abbey, and they had a day conference on Lewis the day before with Alistair McGrath and Malcolm Guyt and a panel discussion with folks like Michael Ward and Bill Craig and Holly Ordway and so on. And uh, we've also got things that happened in Oxford and Cambridge kind of that around that anniversary and we're publishing it all together in a, in a book um, which sort of shows the continuing sort of influence in all sorts of spheres. Cambridge had a conference on Lewis's critic Bill Craig gave a talk at the Oxford C.S. Lewis Society about his latest research and how it relates to C.S. Lewis. And mm. uh, yeah, so. so if you're going to buy one book to, to sort of dip your toe into to that on a populist level for people that are not very clever, like what? Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> recommend a book. Um, <coughs> I, I guess. How about um, so for William Lane Craig, I would definitely say get his book On Guard. Um, Not on guard. On guard, like with fencing. There's a little picture of a man fencing. But on guard. I was thinking of Terry Pratchett, actually. Guards, guards, yes, yeah. And that's really nicely laid out <coughs> with little diagrams and little cartoons and things. And it, it's more at a sort of um, populist level. And that covers quite a broad territory as well. Sort of arg various arguments for God, the problem of evil, who Jesus was, the evidence for the resurrection... Uh, so on. So he, he has a good website too. Excellent website, stuff. yeah. Also on Be Thinking, they have a lot of his lectures. Yes, yeah. They're, they're one off on it. Yeah, so um, uh, Bill's website is reasonablefaith.org and the, the ucfbthinking.org website is very good as well. It has a lot of papers and audio and video stuff that's kind of ranked in three levels of difficulty as well, sort of introductory, a bit deeper, and sort of PhD level. Yeah. So you can, <laughs> you can <coughs> dip your toe into a subject with a short article and then get a bit more and then sort yeah. of go as far as you want, really, which is, which is really nice. Um, yeah. Cool, thank you. How far is your diary booked from... Speaking. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sometimes quite a long, long way in advance, but it, it, they, uh, it doesn't mean that my diary is, is blocked, it is, yeah. is chock a block. You were quite so, slow uh, off the mark, <laughs> he fitted a so. Yeah, uh, so, I, I will bend over backwards to try and fit stuff in. So, changing tack a little bit, I mean, mm. obviously, you know, it's nice that we as Christians who, mm. you know, want to be encouraged in our faith look at the, the evidence and the arguments mm. but then there's the other side connecting with mm. people out there mm. who like somebody said in the questions last mm. night in the end of the day say well that all sounds plausible but I'm just not interested yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. so so and one of the 
how, how are you finding people? I don't know how to launch into this, but asking questions about certain things mm. that, that we can sort of latch on to. Yeah. Do we, do we sort of preach the truth, trusting that it's going to resonate with something in people anyway, mm. you know? Uh, so, uh, yeah, so just some thoughts on yeah. really getting the yeah. possible out to I, I think people in today's society. There, there, there's a certain constituency of people who are just interested in the kind of academic issues and if you put on a lecture as we did last night on I don't know, why I believe in the resurrection of Jesus uh, we'll be interested and we'll come and we'll ask, we'll ask questions and, and so on a lot of people m might be more as you say the sort of frame of mind of, of like well who cares so what if you, you know you can believe that but you know <laughs> I'm not really they're not even really of the, the frame of mind of, oh, I can, I can see that that's an important question that could determine my, my worldview and how I live my life and I really ought to pay it attention and give it some serious consideration, you know. Mm -hmm. um, you might get that more amongst certain university students or, or what have you. Um, but so I think that the way in which the, the, the church tries to make those connections with people um, really does matter and... Um, for example, my church back in, in Southampton had Bill Craig do a lecture there a fortnight ago. Gave the Sunday evening over to it as he was at the end of a little British trip. And we were initially just going to have Bill, oh, well, he's at the end of a trip, we'll have him over and he can do one of his standard sort of lectures and we'll video it and that'll be nice kind of thing. Uh, but then this film, The Theory of Everything, about Stephen Hawking. Mm -hmm came out and the, the guy then won an Oscar for the performance and so it was sort of big news and so on um, and we thought aha right so we managed to get hold of the script for it and, and send that to Bill and he shaped his talk around the film Theory of Everything <laughs> yeah. I preached on the street twice. I got a sketchbook yeah, yeah. talk, The Theory of Everything The Theory of Everything so, so, oh, as they say in Ireland I've written for one uh, I saw the movie yeah. but, uh, yeah. <laughs> So, um, mm -hmm. and um, Damaris has done some, some resources for, okay. for group discussions of that if you want to, to look up for that, which is freely available, um, to get people talking about the, the big important issues of life off the back of watching film. Um, are those available? Those, um, I mean, the, are they on the web? Are they for sale? Are they free downloads? Yeah. Some, some are free on yeah. the web, and then others you sign up. But it's all it's all free. Okay. We will send you uh, a, a booklet and a DVD through the post. Right. Um, and sometimes we do additional materials, which is downloadable, say for schools, educational resources, or specifically for churches. Sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, but the main thing is you you just sign up and it comes through the post free. Um, um, so using something that's big in popular culture like that, and when we packed out the church. Right. Uh, lots of students packed the place out. So you called the um, evening the theory. The of theory, everything. Of, yeah. You know, yeah. Bill Craig lecturing on the theory of everything, and picture of Stephen Hawking, and mm. you know, advertised it around the local area, and he interacted with all the bits in the film that mention about you know, well, what, oh, what's cosmology? Oh, it's a it's a religion for intelligent atheists, <laughs> and you know, that was sort of the subtitle of the talk was is cosmology a religion for intelligent atheists? Right. And he talked about yeah. Hawking's different models. And whether that meant there was a beginning or not a beginning, did that fit with a biblical worldview? And um, and he also then linked it to Hawking's stuff about the sort of meaning and purpose of life. 
um, and, and talked about how you know God was the foundation for meaning and purpose in life and, and again connecting to the more kind of existential um, what does this mean in my life issues rather than it just being oh this is just an abstract interesting conversation for people in ivory towers to, to have yeah. um, but actually sort of saying no you know actually it might seem that at first but actually it really does connect with things that you do you do care about and does make a difference to how you sort of live and feel in the world um, so I do think yeah we need to try and be creative uh, as a church in, in using uh, the arts to frame apologetics and to make connections to things that people do know that they care about right yeah, I'm, yeah. I, I, I was smiling because I just noticed that you do Shaun the Sheep movie as well like, <laughs> <laughs> marvellous you know and it comes down to the Christ and culture Mm-hmm. issue, you know, you know, without going to do that, but I mean, because I look at most of the media, for me, as mm. a Christian, I'm thinking, a lot of this does not edify me, mm. a lot of this promotes values, and is this like the circus, mm. where the Christian said, look, we, we don't belong in the circus, we don't mm. want to go and see gladiators kill themselves, you know, mm. um, and how do, yeah. I mean, we're going off the issue, but, because I struggle with seeing so many Christians sort of engage culture mm. to the extent that they absorb it. They absorb it, mm. yeah. Mm. You're right that sometimes a line has to be drawn and things have to be criticised. But the, the church has an unfortunate rep through that of the church's engagement with culture being negative. You know, the church hits the, 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 the news headlines when you know, Scorsese's The Life, you know, Last Days of Christ or whatever it was called comes out and mm-hmm. the church is up in arms and waving placards like Father Ted saying, you know, enough of this now, careful of that sort of thing. Um, down with, down with the arts, boo. Um, and I think our approach is to say that, um, just like people are made in the image of God and fallen, are therefore wonderful and terrible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Art, which is made by people, reflects that, and so has good and bad in it but that the, the balanced approach to take is to try and to look for those things which one can praise and celebrate mm-hmm. in art, whether it's you know, or not, produced by whomever, yeah. and to try and, um, uh, and be positive, first and foremost, but then also to look for those things that need critiquing and that are, that are different to biblical values and so on, and to, to engage with them but having sort of earned the right to, to to be critical through wanting to be positive in the engagement right. yeah, in, in a sense um, I was doing a, a talk at a church up near Cambridge the other week um, about um, I do a, a talk about monsters as a genre and how you can connect um, talking about uh, monster movies to talking about the gospel thinking about okay well what is a, a monster 
Um, how do you, you know, the Cookie Monster from Sesame Street is not a monster. It's Godzilla. <laughs> Godzilla's a monster. And the monsters on TV. Yeah. God is bigger than. <laughs> and the monsters on TV. You know that. Is that from the Hanna-Barbera cartoon version? I, I, th- I think it comes out of um, who, the, the little um, cucumber and the little tomato. Oh, oh, yeah. yes. The yes. God is bigger than Oh, the, the, oh yes, bigger than the, the boogie boogie man. That's right. He's bigger than Godzilla in the Monsters on TV. There we go. Yeah. They got right. it all together. Yeah. Um, yeah, sorry, sorry. Um, I mean, linguistically, it goes by the, the Latin words that are on the root of our word demonstrate. Uh, uh, monere, uh, and so on. Um, monstre, dem- demonstrate. Um, it shows us or warns us about something. Okay. Um, a, a monster is a sort of literary device that, sh- that shows us and warns us about our own capacity for evil. They're, they're sort of icons... It, it, the sort of negative icons, representations of things we fear about ourselves. Um, so then, you know, I, I look at some like classic monster movies of the 50s and so Godzilla is a representation of nuclear warfare. Yeah. It, it comes out of the sequels of nuclear testing and it attacks Tokyo with its nuclear breath and so on, uh, made by the Japanese within what, 15, 20 years of nuclear bombs being dropped on Japanese cities. That's what it's talking about. Um, a lot of those monster movies of the 50s are sort of scared about you know, man's growing power over nature and will nature come and bite us in the backside because we're messing with things we're not meant to know. Can I ask you know. Yeah. <laughs> Would that be found in the stated purpose for the production of these or are we reading into them laterally mm. that interpretation, you know, trying to fit, make them into something that the originators <clears throat> did not intend, <clears throat> but we seen <clears throat> and impose it on. I'm, I'm yeah, it's, uh, I don't know a little s- of specific details, but I guess it would be a, a bit of each, of each. Uh, and it would vary from, from film to film. Mm-hmm. Um, so Russell T. Davis, famously an outspoken atheist, reconceives the Daleks, like the main classic Doctor Who monster, which back back in the day, Daleks used to represent sort of Nazism, fascist kind of hatred of anything different. Um, you're different from us. We're going to exterminate you and enslave you, and, and so on. When it comes back in 2005, he wants to make them relevant and scary to the new 2005 audience. He retcons them as religious fundamentalists. They're all like, you know, the, the Emperor Dalek is the god of all Daleks and you must worship him or we'll exterminate you, kind of stuff. And the Daleks have recreated themselves, having nearly been defeated yeah, yeah, yeah. by recruit by sort of recruiting the, those humans whose society doesn't look after and spurns <laughs> the sort of rejects of human society and they take them and they sort of brainwash them and fillet them and create new Daleks out of them. So it's about sort of radicalisation of those that society doesn't look after and so on. And, you know, that's what an audience in 2005 is scared of. It's religious fundamentalists, you know, going around killing people. Um, So if you make the Dalek a a symbol of that, that makes them scary. Um, And as I say, so you're an atheist writer using these Daleks as a 
thing of religious fundamentalism and critiquing religion, but what he's also assuming in doing that, and what every audience member, whilst they're watching Doctor Who and being scared of the Daleks, assumes are things like, evil is real. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm not hoping that the Doctor will lose because I'm, I'm cheering on the Daleks, because they're the bad guys, you know. Um, evil's real. Monsters, since they're symbolic and representations of us and what we're scared about about us, they're telling us that this, you know, evil is in the human heart. Um, it's a story of good versus evil, so evil must be fought against, and there's hope for defeating it. And that hope resides in a sort of messiah-like figure who comes into our world from outside of it and frequently sacrifices himself <laughs> in order to uh, attain the day and doesn't use violence whenever possible to do it, but you know, yeah. self-sacrifice. Okay. Um, and so all of these messages that the story is giving out it, are, are deeply biblical yeah. in terms of its, its worldview about the nature of evil and humans and need for salvation and etc etc um, so it immediately connects to very deep things of the gospel in a way that you can say hey this ancient <coughs> script writer is saying loads of things that agree with the biblical worldview <laughs> um, and so you know I've done talks like that, using that as a, as a lever into, let me go talk to Doctor Who fans about the gospel by talking about Daleks. You know. um, <laughs> well, maybe we should have you in because we've got the Doctor oh, Who absolutely. center <laughs> doing the yeah. Yeah. Doctor Who talk. Yeah. Yeah. Good, well, we, it'd be nice to spend all day morning talking. Well, I get, I get just one more question. Right? Just one more. We have a quick question and we need to pray and go out in the streets. Okay, this, this will lead right into prayer. <laughs> um, the abolition of man, yes, mm. Mm. How do you see that reflecting what we're? It, it, it's a, a book that every everybody should read. Yeah, definitely. And it's only three chapters long, yeah. so it's not. But how do you see that fitting into the? So what's the main, what's the main book? Main point. The abolition of man. Yeah. What's, what's, his, what's his main? Point well, in in unfolding how it fits today, maybe. Mm. Mm. Uh, sure. Okay. Yeah. Um, he starts by um, critiquing a, a book that he was sent to review, I think, uh, that was a book about secondary school literature teaching. But he says that this, this, this book smuggles in a philosophy to its teaching. The educational system is, is smuggling in a, a philosophy that is um, sort of moral relativism, basically relativism, relativism about values. And whilst children think they're learning English lit, actually they're learning to be moral relativists. Uh, and then he says um, that uh, through uh, science and growing understanding of human nature and so on, and the power of the state over the individual is increasing, um, and that um, people have this um, sort of project which today is sort of seen in things like the, the rise of the transhumanist kind of movement um, to, to reshape man in our own image or in the image of what we want him to be or the state wants him to be or those with power want, want him to be. Um, but that those engaged in that, this project of you know, improving humanity if they are not being guided by an ideal, ideal of any objective standards by which you could say this is an actual improvement rather than merely a change, 
what that means is really you have some people with power to try and shape human nature but who are merely being guided by nature their you know whatever desire they happen to have that's strongest or that they're just sort of adrift in in relativism and yet trying to impose their view of humanity onto humanity through the tools of science be that nowadays sort of genetic engineering or um, psychology or social you know, ordering and, and so on so that really the, the supposed triumph of man over man will actually be the triumph of, of, of nature over man and is dehumanising towards humans so in, in a sense in writing this in the, in the 1940s 43, yeah. uh, he um, uh, was very much kind of getting on to the <coughs> The noticing sort of the rise of sort of a certain form of postmodernism, you might say, or relativism about values, which is actually deeply modernist, as Bill Craig points out, um, and speaks today still very much into whole discussions about things like transhumanism, genetic engineering, the power of the state over the individual, um, posthumanism. Yeah. 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 Yeah, pragmatism coming in, some transforming through their own pragmatism what man is going to become, and in the end, man yeah. is yeah. The, the abolition of man. He's become a product of entity right. through naturalism and stuff. Very insightful, yeah. I think, yeah. of when he put forward what we're seeing and yeah. roll the film forward. Yeah. Yeah, very precisely. And it's insightful <coughs> as, as well in, in, in things like he wrote a little essay, I forget the, the name of it now, but it, about about punishment in the penal system and people who were sort of saying pun- seeing the penal system as even partially about punishing people for their crimes is, is bad and uncivilised and it, it ought to be about um, you know, making them better the sort of medicalization of crime and punishment um, and Richard Dawkins today very much sort of says you know, well people don't really have free will they're not really responsible for their crimes. It doesn't make any sense to punish them for what they're doing. What the legal system needs to be about is sort of, you know, fixing people. Um, we will put you in prison and we'll, we'll try and fix you. And when you are the way society wants you to be, we'll release you. And if you're not, then we'll, we'll better not release you because you're, you know, you're dangerous or mad or whatever. Um, and again, Lewis sort of said this approach of seems to be more sort of compassionate and it's about helping you and fixing you and we're not punishing you but actually it's dehumanizing because it's saying you don't have any responsibility you don't have the dignity of an individual who's responsible for your actions or making changes in your life that you're responsible for you're just the subject of the state's power to try and shape you <coughs> to be the way the state wants you to be um, that goes alongside that yeah thank you Peter, and, uh, who knows, you might get invited to the OEC conference one day <laughs> uh, to share with a whole bunch of other evangelists. And, uh, good. Right. Well, we're, we're going to take um, a few minutes to pray before most of us go out and, and Martin Manzi's.